Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So when you came in this morning, they were handing out two things to you. They were handing out a bulletin, and they were also handing out these little envelopes with Time to Imagine cards on the inside. I want you to just have that close today. I want you to be able to see it as I talk. Um, The sermon isn't specifically about this, but uh, I'll get to that at the end. Um, Just a a couple of notes. One, we're trying to give one per family. So if your family got more than one, we're not sending you a special message, okay? It's nothing like that. And uh, if you are a family and you didn't receive one of these, if, if you would just go to the Welcome Center and request one, they'll have one there for you. And uh, one last thing about these, we welcome our visitors today, so glad you're with us, but one thing we want to make sure you understand is at the end of the message, when I start talking about this envelope and we have some kind of house business we need to take care of at the end of the service, um, you can just, you can enjoy without feeling like I'm talking to you necessarily. Uh, I think the sermon's going to be great for all of us this morning, we'll all learn something from that, but when I start talking about time to imagine, that's really for the people that call Cross Lane home. And um, we're praying and hoping that one day that includes you, but uh, if you aren't calling Cross Lane home right now, then certainly those remarks will not be targeted at you at all. In in Luke chapter 4, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He's appearing at the synagogue, and he's announcing his kingdom, and he says something very interesting. And you don't need to turn here. If you want to turn in your Bible, go to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17 is where we'll center things this morning. But in Luke, Jesus said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Have you ever experienced something that's so funny that you laughed until you cried? You ever experienced something that was so funny that it made snot come out your nose? Or, or that made your belly hurt? Or that you, you know, when you got, finally got done, your cheeks were sore, you had smiled so broadly and laughed so hard, or you're, you, know, you held your stomach because you couldn't get over how much it hurt you to laugh? And, and then you, you're later you're with somebody else and you try to relay the story or the thing that was funny that happened and you're telling them about it, and they're looking at you like you've got, you know, like 20 heads, and, and um, they just don't think it's as funny. And you can kind of tell the minute you start telling the story that they don't get it. And what do we say oftentimes when that happens? We say, well, I guess you had to be there. I guess you had to be there. If you know me very well, you know that um, along the middle of October, there's, a, there's, there's about 10 days that I take off. And I go over to Mitchell, Indiana, where my best friend lives, and um, I, I, we camp with, with him and with his family and a couple of other families that we've met through him. And uh, I spend 10 days with my best friend just sitting around a campfire, eating food that's not good for me, um, telling stories, and um, it's just a beautiful thing. And, and uh, you know, Michael knows enough about me to run me out of ministry. And I know enough about him. He's a part-time pastor. I know enough about him. I could run him out of ministry. But we hold those secrets close. You know, we're brothers, so we don't do that. But he's so funny. And he's just one of these guys that has this, this impeccable timing when it comes to telling the story. You know, he, there's certain guys that are just really good storytellers, and they know how to punctuate the story. They know how to pause and wait and develop it and let it build. And, 
And then there's times that their wit is so quick that they say the right thing at the right moment and it just slays everybody that hears it. Well, there were a couple of times in this past fall break where we're sitting around the campfire. It's late at night. It's like 11, 1130. And, and Michael just let loose with a couple of these things that he, you never know when they're coming with him. And I mean, our whole campfire, there were probably 15, 20 people around this campfire. We fell apart. I mean, you know, we couldn't catch our breath. At one point, there was complete silence around the campfire because we had all exhaled and we were trying to catch our breath, you know, so it, it sounded kind of weird. But and, and he's just sitting there with that look on his face like, you know, what, what are you guys laughing at? And my gut hurt when I got done. And my, my cheeks hurt. And I, it was so funny. I thought I was going to fall out of my chair. Well, I came home and tried to tell those same stories to my staff. And the minute I start telling the stories, you can just tell by the look on their face, you know, like it's not really that funny. And you know before you get to the punchline, they're not going to get it. And I found myself saying... You had to be there, because that really was the truth. Um, over the years at Cross Lane, we've experienced some pretty amazing days. There, there, you may be new to us and not have experienced some of these, and I got in trouble this morning as I talked about this to, with some people. They said, you don't do that anymore. Um, we're always looking for something crazy to do. But one time, uh, I rode a motorcycle into the old auditorium. Okay? I mean, right up the gut, Steppenwolf playing Born to be Wild at 110 decibels. I'm wearing motorcycle leathers and, you know, riding a Harley. It was awesome. Um, I almost laid it down right there in the auditorium. One day we gave away Krispy Kreme donuts. I preached the Krispy Kreme sermon, which I'll do again here before too long. Yeah, woo, Krispy Kremes. Uh, we gave away, we gave away copious dozens amounts of, of Krispy Kreme donuts. It was a wonderful day. Well, one day I preached a sermon on baptism and we gave away Dippin' Dots. And the idea was we are baptizing disciples of the sun, D-O-T-S, we're Dippin' Dots, you get it? So we, um, we went and got the, the dry ice that you have to have to pack the Dippin' Dots and we had like I don't know, four or five different flavors, big boxes full of Dippin' Dots ice cream, and we gave Dippin' Dots, the kids went nuts when they saw we were going to give away Dippin' Dots ice cream. That was a wonderful day. The day that we, that I remember very fondly is the day we took the commitments from the congregation, and we raised money for this building right here. And, um, you know, I had told my mom, it's always hard for me to talk about the money part of things, and I get excited about vision casting and I get excited about what God's going to do, but there's also a part of me that worries that somebody's not is going to think we're greedy or that they're not going to understand our heart or whatever. And so I had talked about some of this to my mom. And, and um, so the day came that we were, we, you know, we'd done all of our homework. We, it was the day could come where we were going to receive commitments on the new building. And uh, we raised a, a, a tremendous amount of money that day. And I remember in both services, after it was over, we, those of you who are there, remember we walk out into that little, that little lobby, and the lobby would just fill up with people, and it was loud and noisy. But on that day, in both services, when everybody left, it felt like we had, our team had just won the Super Bowl. You know, there was just this euphoric 
excited, um, let's take the hill kind of attitude among us. Uh, let's see what God's going to do in us and through us and for us. And it was just this amazing day. And I remember trying to, I, I talked to mom th- that afternoon and she said, well, how did it go? And I was trying to explain to her how great the day had been. And, and I just found myself at a place where I, I, all I could say was, mom, you just had to, you had to be there. You just had to be there. Sometimes when you're trying to tell somebody about church or about Cross Lane in general, and they've experienced church, they've gone to another church and they left because they, something happened or they didn't like it or it was boring or it was dull or it, you know, it was a list of do's and don'ts or it just it didn't resonate with them and they've left church and they don't want church anymore. And you're trying to tell them about Cross Lane and how different it is here and how much you like it. And maybe something happened on that day and you're trying to tell them and you realize they don't get it. And you just want to say, man, you, you just, you got to be there. You, you, you had to be there. I think what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 4 is one of those times where he's trying to talk to people about a historic event that preceded them, predated them by about a couple of centuries, more than that actually, and he's trying to give them insight into their situation by using this situation from the Old Testament. And he uses this history lesson but they're, they're just not getting it. They're not connecting with the story. And he's talking about, talking about this to a group of religious people who should have gotten the connection and should have understood exactly what he was talking about, but they didn't. So he uses this example from the past. I want to look at that story this morning from the Old Testament. Today, I hope to answer the question for some of you. I hope to answer it for all of you, but certainly for some of you, um, why am I where I am? That's really the question I want to answer this morning. Why am I where I am? The question gets asked a lot. We don't often ask that question out loud. We don't let other people hear us ask that question sometimes. Um, maybe you think that when you're at work, like, why am I here? Maybe you have that question when you're driving somewhere. Um, in the quiet moments in your life, you know, you're in a, a place or a situation or a dilemma and you just don't understand why you're there. And maybe today, God wants to show you why you are where you are. The story that Jesus refers to is in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's a story from the Old Testament. This would have been a well-known story to the, uh, to the people that Jesus is talking to. And this would have been loved by the Hebrew people, this story. Um, Elijah would have been one of the prophets that they would easily recognize and talk about and, and remember from their, their lessons that they had growing up, and even when they, they talked just about every day about spiritual things, Elijah would come up. And Elijah is appearing in a time of crisis for his countrymen, and in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we hear his name for the very first time, and it says this. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, can we just all stop for a minute and acknowledge the fact that Elijah's got to be a pretty bad boy to be able to just speak the words and that the the rain stops for three and a half years. He speaks the word of the Lord and there's this drought that follows. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So God is speaking to Elijah, leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. And then what's the next word? There. 
I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. I think one of the things that the Bible teaches is that your provision always awaits your obedience. Let me say that again. Your provision always awaits your obedience. God will always put your provision in the place he desires to plant you. So in Luke chapter 4, he uses some language. He says, Elijah was sent to a woman at Zarephath, but before he was sent to that woman, he was directed to a brook. After the rain stopped falling in Israel, God directs Elijah to this secret place, this secret stash. You know, even when the economy shuts down, God has a way to feed his people. God knows how to get to you what you need, even when you think that there's no means for supply for you, that it's necessary for you. One of the things I want you to see this morning in this story is that God is challenging the support system of a nation. He's challenging it for the whole nation. The people of Israel had come to trust in what lies in the clouds, so God does something interesting. He shuts down the sky so that, the, so that he can open the heavens. I would just caution you against putting anything ahead of God in your life. A relationship, your kids, your spouse, money, education, houses, or cars. I would caution you against putting any of those things ahead of God in your life. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing to allow anything to occupy a place in your heart that is only meant for God to occupy. It would be very easy to read this story and to think that it was a cruel thing for God to bring a drought to the land, but I see it as an act of kindness. You see, when we depend on the wrong things in life, God will often dethrone what we're depending on because he knows that it will ultimately fail us. The people of Israel had begun to worship this God named Baal. He was the Phoenician rain god. And because he was thought to bring the rain, and because all the neighboring nations would call on Baal for rain, the Israelites thought it was a good idea, and so instead of placing their dependency upon the one true God, they were calling on Baal. The one true God had led them out of slavery. The one true God had led them to the land of promise. He promised to be their God forever and ever. And they start calling on Baal, and when God sees you calling on Baal, often he has to confront Baal in your life. Because he understands that as long as you're depending on Baal for your support, you can't know the blessing of God as your source. So the sky shuts down and there's no rain in the land. And it's three and a half years this goes on. And God tells Elijah, even with the skies shut, you can still hear my voice. And even when everyone else's support system fails, I have a stream. There is a secret place that I'm going to lead you to. There's a secret stream that I want to lead you to. See, we too often depend on a system that isn't strong enough to support us, a relationship or a job. God will shut down the sky not to kill you, but sometimes he will shut down the sky to reveal to you your calling. See, not every drought is the work of the devil. We just want to blame the devil for everything, and sometimes we're the devil. Sometimes the devil doesn't have to tempt us. We're just so easily ready to do something that's not good for us that 
you know, we want to blame it on him, and it's not even his fault. We did it all on our own. Here in 1 Kings 17, God in his mercy shut the sky. It is possible that God is shutting off a supply system in your life today to get you to come back to the source of life. It's possible that something that you're lacking is is God trying to, in some way, bring you back to him. He will do that sometimes, not because he's trying to hurt you. He will do that because he loves you. He says, I see you trusting in things that other people put their faith in. So I got to cut off your support. I got to shut the sky. God has an unusual way of taking care of you when you follow him. In our story today, he says to Elijah, the economy is going to fail. There's going to be a famine and this land is going to be hit pretty hard. And just let me say, I don't think that we can fathom the level of drought that these people are going to experience. I mean, three and a half years, no rain. That's pretty serious. And God says, if you'll listen to my voice, I've got something for you. But in order for you to get what I've got for you, you can't stay here. You got to get there. So you ask yourself, well, where's there? There is a place of obedience. There is the place where you esteem God's voice above all other voices and God's way above your own. God says, even in a time of famine, I have a way to feed my people and I can sustain you in a time of struggle and I can sustain you in times of scarcity. But you gotta get there. Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is there, that is where the blessing is. It's always there, wherever he calls you to be. First Kings chapter seven, verse five. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. You had to be there. Something is happening in America, and it's happening in this church, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little worried about it. I worry about some of you who miss church so much because sometimes the encouragement that you need for the week that you're facing is in the service that you skipped because you were too busy to come. And the reality is we need you, and you need us. You need to come and feel the strength and encouragement of fellow believers. You need to come and give yourself in worship to God. You need to come and be encouraged by the word of God and by the singing of of songs to God. You need to come to feel a part of something and be reminded that you aren't the only one who believes this way and thinks this way. The Bible says he went there to the Kareth Ravine and stayed there. And look how God hooked him up. Look what God will do when you get where he puts you. Look what God will do when you say, stay where he plants you. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So this guy actually has appointments with birds in the morning and in the evening. The ravens are dropping off food for him, and it's going good. And then you come to verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up. And we can talk about how the nation was, was lo- has lost touch with God. 
and was disobedient to God because the people had put too much stock in the support system and not enough in the source. And we can get all that, but now it's dried up for Elijah. And Elijah had obeyed God. Elijah went there. And one day the birds don't show up at 7 a.m. And one day there is no food. And it's important for you to see this. Sometimes we get really comfortable in the last place where we trusted God. We have a bad habit of getting really comfortable in the last place we trusted God. I think sometimes God says, you know, if the brook keeps flowing at this rate, you won't go to the next place I call you to. There has to come a point where that brook gets shut down because God, understand, God is always moving us. God is always calling us to something else. Not just as a church, but you individually. God is always calling you. He's never going to let you stay here. He's always going to be moving you to there. It said that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, not because Elijah had done something wrong, but because he had spoken the word that God had given him. Sometimes stuff will dry up in your life, not because of what you did wrong, but because God has seen that you will obey him on that level, and now he wants to move you to the next level. But if he keeps supporting you at the brook, if he keeps supporting you with the birds, then you will come to depend on that support system. And God doesn't want you leaning on anything that is supporting you that doesn't have him as a source. Verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up because there had, had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. There may be famine in your life, but there will never be famine of the word of God in your life. Because God is always going to speak to you where you are through what you have and what you don't have. That's how God's going to move. And it's, it's important for us to realize that God always has a next step. You may not know it, you may not see it, but God always has a next step. This series is about stretching. This series is about what God does as he, as he will use the next step to stretch you many times. He'll let a brook dry up so that you will ask him, God, where do you want me to go next? So God tells Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. See, it's always there that God blesses you. God said, I have directed a, a widow there to supply you with food. Elijah had to be by the brook for a season so that he could receive that supply. But when that season was over, God had to cut off that supply so that he could move him to the next place because there was some place else that Elijah had to be. So God says to Elijah what every good parent says to his child, I'll tell you when we get there. Right? Are we there yet? 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 I mean, how many ways can they ask that question, right? This is like they will drive you crazy. They are relentless with the question. You ever taken them on vacation more than three hours away? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Does that ever annoy you? You ever get tired of your kids asking you, are we there yet? I used to be a youth pastor, and we'd load them up into the vans, you know, to take them somewhere to Knoxville, Tennessee, or someplace like that, and, long trip and the, you know the, we're not even not half hour in you know how, how much longer my answer was always the same five more minutes five more minutes it's a six hour trip okay then stop asking me are we there yet you know three hours later are we there yet five more minutes just five more minutes brett you said that three hours ago i know five more minutes 
See, we want to know that with God. Are we there yet? God, am I there yet? And God says, this is the wrong question because the moment you get there, there will no longer be a there, that will be here. And I always want to grow you and change you and make you more like Jesus. So as soon as you get there, it will be here and there will be the new here. What do you do when there is the new here? When you say, okay, this is over, this is done, this isn't working anymore, ask God, what's next? And don't get upset with God because he doesn't tell you all the details. Verse 9, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And that's all he tells him. That's all he tells him. When I use the phrase ulterior motive, does that have a negative connotation in your mind? Ulterior motive. You know, we hear that and we think shady or sly or dishonest, you know, slimy. But I think God often operates with ulterior motives, which is to say that he will get you into something, but he won't tell you exactly what he's getting you into and why he's getting you into it. He told Abraham, go to the land I'll show you, but I'm not telling you all of it because if I told you where I'm taking you and you knew all of the things that you will have to fight to get there, when you got there, you wouldn't go to begin with. You wouldn't go there if you knew what was waiting for you there. Have you ever been something in your life that on the back end of it, it it produced great character for you or great results for you, but if they had told you on the front end everything you were going to have to go through to get that, you would have said, no thanks right? Some of you, I mean, I'm that way with, I look back on my college years and I'm like, if they had told me Greek at seven in the morning, if they'd told me that, I'd have said, no, thank you, right? But you look back on it, it's like, I'm really glad I went through it now. God will let you get into a job thinking that you're there to make money, and then you get there and you realize that God didn't put you there just to make money for you. He put you there to make a difference, God will often let us think that we're at a place for what we can get out of it. But God wants the place that you expected to be fed to become the place where he begins to grow your faith. And you no longer are just showing up over what's in it for me. God often works with ulterior motives and he will lead you to a place and you will think you know exactly what's going on, but you don't know what's going on. He told Elijah, I got this woman, she's gonna feed you there. And I don't know about you, but if this was me, I'm not sure I would like it that a widow was going to be waiting for me at that city. I would want God to be sending me to somebody with some means, right? Send me to the rich guy in the city, God. Don't send me to the widow. She's not going to have any money. I think most of us would want to be sent to somebody wealthy. So I think Elijah suspects that something is up, but he doesn't know exactly what, but he knows God is up to something. Once you've had birds dropping food off at your door, and once you've been sent to a brook in the middle of a drought, you learn to realize when God is up to something, and you know God's able to work. So Elijah knows something's up. In verse 10, we read this. So he went to Zarephath, not knowing what awaited. All you got to do is go. The provision is there. They can't make the brook flow, you can't make the brook flow. You can't make the birds come, you can't make the widow show up, but God can if you get there. 
See, God controls the outcomes. My job is to be obedient. With this Time to Imagine project that we're getting ready to undertake, uh, it reminds me of a time when we were raising money for this building. We called it the Room to Be Real campaign. And there was a portion in that whole thing where I had to ask specifically for money from some people. And um, if you know me very well, you know that I love to preach and I love to cast vision, but talking about money is not something that I really enjoy doing. And talking to somebody one-on-one about money is something I'm really not fond of doing. But I was going to have to go do this, and I was complaining to God one day. I was praying about it and whining and praying to God. And, you know, I basically made a statement to the effect of, God, I don't know why I have to raise all this money. I don't know why this responsibility, why do I have to do this? And that's when God kind of got after me. And I kind of heard God say to me, Brett, who told you that your job is to raise $1.7 million? Who told you that? And then I heard God say to me, my job is to provide the money that your church needs for the things that you guys are trying to do. All I'm asking you to do today is go to this place and do this thing. That's all I'm asking you. I'll take care of the outcome. I just want to know today, Brett, if you're willing to do the one thing I'm asking you to do right now. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to risk? Are you willing to look foolish for me? Are you willing to be told no for me? I'm, Brett, I'm just asking you to go. You're not responsible for the outcome. Brett, I'll take care of the outcome. See, in a little bit, we're going to talk about time to imagine. And if I'm totally honest with you, in quiet moments when I'm praying about this kind of stuff, I get really insecure with God, and I start to go, get into that mode where, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do And I hear God say, Brett, your job, tell them what they need to know, give them the information, make an ask, make a request. I will handle the outcome. I'll speak to them. Your job is to just do what I'm telling you to do. So really what God is telling me is, Brett, I need you to get there. Verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there. How masterful does God have to be? As soon as he got to to the gate, there's a widow. Jesus said there were many widows in that city at that time, but there was one woman that needed to be at that gate at that time, and when Elijah simply obeyed the word of God, not understanding what was next, he saw her. See, God has a way of getting you there at the right time. And this is why you need to make sure that you don't try to get there without God, wherever there may be for you. You don't want to get successful without God. You don't want to go to college without God. You don't want to try to build a family without God because only God knows what you need when you get there. Verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And then as she is polite enough to go and get it and indulge the request of this strange man, then he pushes it to the next level. Because in his mind, God told me to go and ask her for these things. Look at verse 11. As she was going to get it, so this strange guy has asked her for water, so, you know, 
if, if a strange guy asked you for water, you'd probably say, get it yourself. But she, she looks at this guy, and she's, okay, I'll go get it. She's going to get it, and then he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. To which all the wives right now are thinking, boy, that sounds familiar. And at this point, the woman has had it. She's ticked. Sometimes life will push you past the breaking point. You're, you're trying to handle all the demands. You're trying to handle, trying to be everything to everybody. You're trying to be a good Christian. You're trying to be a servant. You're trying to do things with a smile on your face, trying to be kind. But this woman is going through her own crisis. And so we, we have a nation in crisis, a prophet in crisis, and a woman in crisis. And God brings all these crises together at a connection point to reveal his calling to each of them. And write this down. Callings are born in times of crisis. Callings are born in times of crisis. This woman talks back and she says something that the translation of verse 12 does not give you, it doesn't get it across very well. Let me read what what verse 12 says and then let me help you understand how it might have sounded. As surely as the Lord your God lives, which sounds nice, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds nice. That's so nice. That's probably not how she said this. You know probably what this sounded like? I swear to God, I don't have any bread. I've got a handful of flour in a jar. I've got a little bit of oil in a jug. And I'm out here at the gate, and I'm trying to find something to make a fire because me and my boy are getting ready to have our last meal, and we're going to die. Now, do you still want your bread? See, I think she's mad. I don't think she's at all happy. And Elijah's reply is something you can't miss. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first. But first. See, it sounds selfish on the surface, but he's teaching her the priority. He's teaching her, Matthew 6, that when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else you need that you think you don't have will be added to you. And he said, look, you can go home and you can eat and die, or you can go home and try God. So make me a little loaf and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. This is crazy. It sounds rude, doesn't it? But he has a reason for it. See, he knows that the same God that made the brook flow for him wants to make the oil flow for this woman. And now he realizes, hey, God told me that he was bringing me here so he could feed me, but really God's brought me here to feed her. God didn't tell Elijah there's a woman who needs a miracle and you're going to meet up with her and and give her an instruction and she's going to obey. God didn't tell Elijah any of that. But when he got there, he realized, wait a minute, what if the reason I'm here, what if the reason the brook dried up, what if the reason I struggle, what if the reason I hurt is because there is someone who's hurting worse than me? There's somebody who has a need that's worse than mine, and God has to get me there, not for what I can get out of them, but for what God has in me to give to them. He wants to get this to be a giving season. 
This can be a turning point in your life when you realize, wait a minute, I've been going from here to there to there, and I'm never satisfied, and I never have enough. But the moment you realize that the reason God sent you there wasn't about the fact that he was trying to get to you something to you, but what he was trying to get through you was something for somebody else. But you had to be there. You had to be in that school. You had to be in that job. You had to be in that industry. You had to be there at that time because there was something that God wanted to do specifically through you for somebody else. You had to be there. Not for me, not for what God wanted to do, for somebody else. God gets Elijah there, and when he gets him there, he shows him what he's there for. The answer to the question, why am I where I am? I don't know all the reasons for that, but I know one, and it's not for you. You're not on this earth for you. God doesn't just want to feed you, bless you, multiply you. He put you there for them. We're trying to get there as a church for them. And it wasn't just for the one woman that God sent Elijah. It was for that whole region to see that there was a God. Elijah says, if you'll go and put God first, he will reveal his ability to provide for all your needs. And she does it. Now look at verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. You see that and? See, it was never about Elijah. And it was never just about you. Why am I here? God says, so I can get you there. You couldn't get there if I didn't bring you here. It's, it's stages, it's steps. It's one step after the other. And he's got to get you there, and there's going to become here for a while. And you're going to stay here, and then God's going to say, I want to move you there. See, as a church, we're doing that all the time. In your life, God wants to do that all the time. You're going to get there, there will become here. And then God, as you sit th- here, is going to call you there. You cannot question every season of your life when you don't understand the purpose of it because God's provision is often hidden in plans that we do not understand. Until we get there. And then we say, oh, now I understand why I had to go through that. Now I understand why I had to hurt. Now I understand why I had to be afflicted by that because God knew there was going to be somebody else who, could ha- who would have the same pain and now i can share i'm not happy that i that it happened but i guess i had to be there i do a lot of counseling a lot of counseling all different kinds i I do not counsel out of the good times in my life The, the the only counseling i know how to do is to take the shattered broken pieces of my life the times when i was going through something or i was afflicted or i'd totally jacked up my own life and God taught me something in it and and said now you're going to meet somebody that's done the exact same thing or been through the exact same thing I want you to use this experience and talk to them about it and so what you find is I had to be there I had to be in that moment I guess it was part of God's purpose we serve a God who makes final arrangements from the beginning See, if I stop this story from 1 Kings right here, you would think this was a good end to the story. This woman is about to starve. She didn't starve. God stretched her supply, and that's awesome. But sometimes you think God's done, and you think, oh, now I get it. And God says, no, no, that's not why you're here. 
The Bible says, for their jar, the, the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Verse 17, some time later, can I just tell you, God always knows what's next. He always knows what's next. He's always positioning you according to your purpose. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And this woman is still bitter. She, she has a bit of a tone with Elijah. Verse 18, she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? <laughs> and very boldly, Elijah says, Give me your son. And the Bible says he took him from her arms and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his bed. Here, give me your son. Verse 20, then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? I want you to understand that the man who has seen provision through the ravens the man who has seen the brook run in the middle of the drought, the man that's seen all these miracles, suddenly has doubts. And what happens next is the reason that God brought him to this point. And what happens next is the reason that, that God brought him here. It is the reason that Jesus came. It's the reason that Joseph had to be thrown into a pit and put into prison so he could end up in the palace because the, he had to be there when the famine hit. It's the reason that Moses was put in a basket and sent down the river in Egypt because he had to be there to, in a position to confront Pharaoh where he could understand the education and the background of the Egyptian people. It's the reason that Jonah had to be in the belly of a whale because even if you don't want to go to Nineveh, God has to get you there because there is mercy and compassion that God has put in your mouth for other people and you've got to get there. God has a purpose for you, and you've got to get there. You can't look back and wonder why it went down the way it did. You can't change why it happened the way it did. You had to be there. Even if it was your, your fault, even if it was something, your mistake, you had to be there so that you could learn humility. You had to be there. It had to be a part of your journey. Second guessing won't make it any better. Second guessing isn't going to bring anything back to life. All you can do now is lay it on the bed and bring it before God and shut the door and watch what Elijah did when all his hope was gone and he did not know what else to do. Look what he does, verse 21. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. I wonder today if you will stretch yourself. I wonder if you would pray, God, open the heavens over my life. I need you. I've been leaning on the wrong support. I need you to show me what I'm here for. Show me what my purpose is. Reveal my calling in the midst of crisis. God, I'm ready to stretch myself. Verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. When Jesus was on the cross, they told him, come down off the cross and save yourself. 
But that was the one thing that Jesus couldn't do. Why? Because he had to be there. At that cross, at that moment, for your sin and mine. He had to be there for us to be forgiven. Elijah stretched himself out over the boy. Jesus stretched himself out and died on a cross. And when they came to the tomb three days later, they were surprised that he wasn't there. When the angel said to the women who came to take care of the body of Jesus, why do you seek Jesus of Nazareth? He who was crucified, he is not here, he is risen. Then the angel said, go to Galilee, get together in the upper room, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Where? There. Where? There. One more time. Where? There. Okay. If you would, take out your little envelope. When you came in, you were handed this envelope. It contains a little commitment card. If you turn that over on the back, you'll see in a little box there, we've asked that this be returned, completed. December 6, 2015. Um, I just want to go through some numbers with you so that you'll know. I I just want to present to you the need. I want to present to you the goal. I want to tell you what the elders and staff have already committed to this goal and just make you aware and ask you to help us. And your job is to begin to pray to God, God, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with this? And my challenge to you is that you listen very, very carefully and you do whatever God tells you to do, okay? My job is to ask you to help us with this. Your job is to listen and be obedient to what God says. So I want to work you through some numbers. As of January 1st, 2016, our debt will be $418,250. Um, in the last couple of weeks, our staff and elders have already committed to the, to the Time to Imagine project $37,340, leaving us a balance of $380,910. In our Room to Be Real campaign, which was the one that we did about three or four years ago to raise money for this building, we saw 134 families participate in that campaign. With our growth and maturity in the past three years, we anticipate that approximately 157 families will participate in the Time to Imagine project. And so what I want to do now is I want to just show you a financial breakdown of what this could look like. That's the number that we're shooting for. And you may be wondering where we came up with these numbers. We, at first, you know, you're always trying to figure out creative ways and to break, you want to take a big number like that and break it down so that everybody can understand. We don't need you to stroke one check for $380,000, although, if you want to do that. (laughs) But what we want you to see is that collectively, together, God can use us to take care of this. We've seen this time and time again at this church. So we're always looking for creative ways to break it down. And so what we were thinking was, well, what if everybody gave 
If we could get everybody in the church, I walked into Tracy's office one day, he said, Brett, I've been doing some calculating, and if everybody would give $2,016, we would retire the debt. So we thought at first we might do a sweet 16, 2016 campaign. Then we thought, no, let's don't do that. But what you will see is that all these numbers are divisions of 2016. And so those are, that's a way to break it down. Um, now, you know what? You may not be able to give $4,032 over and above what you already give to this church next year. You might hear that and think, Brett, are you smoking crack? What's wrong with you? But you might be able to do the $2,016. And if you could, I want to, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, now, while we anticipate that approximately 157 families are going to participate in the Time to Imagine project, Tracy tells me that there are actually 244 active giving, we'll call them active giving units or families, okay? There are 244 different sources of giving for this church. And, and it's important for me that all of us participate in this, and here's why. Because there was a day we raised money for, for this building and, and for the renovation, and then one day in August of 2012, we opened these doors and we all walked in here, and it was awesome. Who was in here that day? Remember how awesome that day was? Everybody's walking in, looking around, and looking at what God has done, and it was just a wonderful day of worship. But there were some people who walked in, and they hadn't participated. And they walked in, and they got to enjoy the new building, but they didn't get any sense of the satisfaction that comes from, I sacrificed for this. I helped with this. I'm a part of this. It's important that all of us participate on some level. Why? Because when we go from here to there, I want you to be with us. I want us to do this together with God. And at the end of 2016, when we tell you how God has used us and worked through us collectively to retire our debt, I want you to be able to rejoice with us and to be able to say, I'm a part of this. So I start doing the math, and I subtract 157 from 244. So if we've got 244 total giving families, but we only expect 157 of them to participate, I start doing the math. That leaves 87 families and I start thinking to myself, you know what, what if they just did that bottom rung of giving over and above what they're already giving, and we multiplied 87 times $320, that would be an extra $27,840. So I want to look at the breakdown again. I want you to just take a look at that for a minute. And I want all of you to get out your checkbook and stroke a check for $50,000. No, that's, that's not going to work. Somebody can do that. What is your part? As you look at that thing, I mean, there's all those families out to the side. Where do you fall in that? And again, we're talking about the elders' commitment is over and above what they're already giving. When we talk about this, we've got to make sure that we continue to give and support the ministries that are going on here. This is over and above that. And you think, Brett, that's, that's what are you thinking? I'm thinking that we've got to make a sacrificial commitment. Now let me challenge you. Wherever you look on there and you say, 
you know, that's what I think I could do. Maybe you look at it and you go, I think I could do that 2016. I think I could do that. I want you to take a step back and I want you to think to yourself, but what could, that's me just thinking what I can do. What if, what if God helped me? What if I leaned into God? What if I sacrificed? What if I made a commitment that was going to be maybe even a bit of a challenge for me and the only way I'm going to meet it is if God helps me with it? I'm not suggesting that you would go up to the $4,000 level, but maybe it's a little more than that. What I'm trying to do is get you to think beyond yourself. I want you to think about how God is going to work with you, through you, and in you in the next year as you trust him to do your part in the Time to Imagine project. I want to make sure that you understand what this is and is not about, okay? When we build buildings, when we raise money around here, it's never about the building and it's never about the money. What we care about at this church, and if you've gone here for any length of time at all, you know this. What we care about is one thing. We want to bring people to Jesus. That's all we care about. How do we position ourselves to bring people to Jesus? We're not trying to be the cool church. We're not trying to be the big church. We're not trying to be the hip Hatton church. We're not trying to be the church with the, you know, anything amazing. We're just trying to be the church where people can find Jesus. And I'm about to show you three baptisms. And when I show the baptisms at the end of them, you're free to leave. But I want to tell you about these three baptisms you're about to see. There was a, a there's a, a gentleman that I'm, I've become friends with, and he came to see me sometime back, almost a year, probably, I, don't, I can't remember exactly when, but he came to my office, and he wanted to talk to me, and he had some things going on in his extended family, just wanted to bounce some ideas off me and get some feedback, and we talked, and in the course of that conversation, his wife came up, and he basically said that he'd gone to church his whole life, but his wife hadn't, hadn't really gone to church all that much, and so I volunteered. I said, hey, would you want me to talk to her? And he said, no, no, no. Um, that would be way too much. So I said, okay, that's fine. Um, but I knew their names, and so I immediately went and I, I put her name on the elders' prayer list. I've told you many times that we have an, a prayer list of people that don't know the Lord, and we, we pray for them by name. And we probably, if you don't know the Lord, we're probably praying for you by name. And we do it every elders' meeting. We break them up, we assign them to different elders, and we pray out loud over those names. About three weeks ago, the husband walks up to me and says, uh, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. So we went back to my office, and his wife was with him, and I'm, you know, I'm hopeful, and I'm thinking, oh, is this good news? And he said, um, he said my wife is ready to take the next step, but I, we're not really sure how to, where, what that looks like. So we sat down, and we did the Jesus talk, and um, last Sunday, right down here after church, we baptized her. She's going to be the last baptism you see today. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but I, it's a huge deal because that's what we're about. That's why we raise money. That's why we work so hard. That's why we do church. It's because people matter to God, and we're trying to bring people to Jesus. The other couple you're going to see is engaged to be married. There's some kids involved. You're going to see the kids in the, in the video. 
They are a walking, talking billboard for Jesus right now. They are so fired up about Jesus, it's not even funny. God is alive and God is at work in the lives of the people of this church. And there are people driving up and down Lafayette Avenue that are going to end up here and they don't even know it. Because God's going to bring them in here and he's going to get a hold of their life and he's going to do something amazing and miraculous. So we're just going to watch these three baptisms and I hope you hoop and holler at the end of it. And then once we're done hooping and hollering, you're free to go. Commitment cards, December 6th. Thank you. I believe. I believe. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. Son of the living God. And now, Ian Loomis, upon your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, I believe. Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. And now, Jessica, upon your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now, Yolanda, upon your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My fears, really. Woo-hoo!